Hello there and welcome back to episode 4 of the Private Practice Pro podcast. My name is Giles Davies, I'm the co-founder of Private Practice Pro and in today's podcast we're going to cover the scope of your practice, how to avoid conflicts of interest when you're setting up or starting a clinic or private medical practice and then we're going to go on to the exciting topic of understanding who your customers are. I think it's worth outlining a little bit about what we mean by scope of practice and the scope of your practice is the limit of your knowledge, skills and experience. And I think it's easy, I suppose, with consultants because you're often quite specialised so in many ways you've got a defined scope of practice by the fact that you've probably completed fairly subspeciality training and have actually been sort of accredited it and assessed in it with the intercollegiate exam. But of course in general practice you can have interests or be a GP with a specialist interest and that interest might be things like education or coaching or counselling or dermatology or sexual health services or nutritional therapy interests, functional medicine, and it's really, really quite broad. So if you're going to look and dip your toes into private work or private medicine as a general practitioner, it's worth really thinking about and defining your scope of practice when you're starting to think about building or starting a private practice itself. But look, let's start with consultants because in a way they're a little bit easier and, and often I will see a lot of applications for practicing privileges and they'll have an amazingly glittering CV outlining the amazing prowess in complex and often very novel procedures and a covering letter expressing you know, ambitions to perform these procedures privately and it's very tempting when you start as a newly appointed consultant if you're thinking about doing some private work feeling like you have to have uh, be doing something really clever or new using a robot or a laser. And actually, that's quite a misguided perception. There's a misguided perception also that the private place, the private facility where you might be working, will welcome these new techniques or an existing technique using new pieces of kit. Actually, medical directors get extremely anxious when they see applications for practicing privileges which have very novel uh, operations and procedures listed within their repertoire or scope of practice. It's actually obligatory now for hospitals to ask for quite a detailed breakdown, often procedure code by procedure code, as to your repertoire of expertise. And in fact, increasingly, certainly at the Cromwell Hospital where I work, we are restricting privileges based on the scope of practice. And actually, it can be quite reassuring to know that you could start somewhere with a defined scope of practice that's well within your range of expertise and not have the pressure of perhaps being asked by patients to do things that you might do in the NHS with all the support around you, but you might feel a bit out of your depth doing it solo down the road. And I think it's really different when you work privately, when you work um, in surgery for certain, for certain, but also in really in any speciality, you can feel really quite isolated quite quickly. And of course, it dawns on you that it's only you. You haven't got a registrar. You haven't got an SHO. You haven't got the sort of all the get out of jail cards of a 
big teaching hospital and it's quite scary so defining your scope of practice keeping it really simple is really helpful it's actually much better isn't it to apply for privileges with a defined scope of practice that you can confidently deliver and support with data and also continue to support with outcome data rather than try and new use a new piece of equipment with a rep turning up down the road at the private hospital you're going to come unstuck really quickly it's really important you remember don't don't practice a different sort of medicine in the private hospital always ask yourself what do i normally do for my nhs patients and am i doing exactly the same thing here it is important to remember that you actually have to declare your private practice and your private practice activity as part of your annual appraisal and as part of your job planning you, you're going to need to disclose you know what you're doing privately and include the scope of that work and you're going to have to obtain a letter of good standing each year from each organization you work with with to include in your appraisal yeah so the other thing to say about um, scope of practice is that you shouldn't promote or advertise your private practice in the NHS yeah it's it's actually a myth that once a patient has gone private as it were they can't subsequently change their status and seek treatment as an NHS patient it's tempting but don't do it don't use your NHS secretary or your GP practice admin team for private work without explicit permission so you know getting your NHS secretary to sort of have her mobile and answer calls for private patients during working hours you mustn't do that yeah um, when we go when I in a later podcast we'll cover a little bit about practice management but also it's quite detailed in the course and you can find out how you can easily avoid all of these pitfalls actually with pretty minimal cost to be honest and I suppose the other thing to say is that you've got to be able to deliver your NHS and private commitment safety so don't set yourself up to fail we talked about this before didn't we about job planning and trying to negotiate daytime session for potentially for private practice if you just are talking about evenings and weekends you're, you're more than likely have an evening clinic on the same day as an NHS clinic and they will overrun and then what the temptation is is to walk off sort of leaving the last couple of patients to be seen by the registrar and then hammer your way in the rain to the private hospital and apologize for being late it just doesn't work very well and someone will call you out and actually you could face you know disciplinary procedure on that so just you know it's inevitable on occasions there might be an emergency medical admission or emergency situation where the NHS and private care clash that's just fine make sure you kind of work collegiately with someone else a colleague and see if you can arrange cover when that situation happens yeah it's important that you are aware when you're doing and starting private medical practice about the private healthcare information network or FIN you actually should be registered and you inspect and validate your data within it and it's increasing it's expanding its scope actually of data publication and things like your length of stay uh, the the range of procedures you're doing are all published and you're sort of compared to your peers so if you don't bother 
to check what data they hold about you, you may find that patient, your potential patients may actually have the wrong information. And of course, if you're doing something quite complex or high risk, like cardiothoracic surgery or something really niche, you, your outcomes might look bad, but actually be really good because you've got really difficult patients. So think about the private health information network as well. So scope of practice, private health information network, and appraisal, they all sort of link together. Now, if you look at like GPs, of course, it goes without saying, one of the biggest risks is if you start doing stuff uh, that's unregulated, uh, particularly procedures in an outpatient setting, particularly if it involves anaesthetics. And, you know, the classic example is minor surgery for removal of skin lesions. Just think carefully. Do you actually have competency for this? Does any procedure you're performing require written informed consent? And actually, are, are the premises you're using, are they registered? with the CQC for this regulated activity. So minor surgery is a regulated activity. It's different from a lot of the other regulated activities of the CQC. So don't be tempted just to sort of start doing stuff that you're not trained to do or registered to do. The other classic one, of course, is injectable skin stuff. You know, you could do a course for a few days and sort of get the certificate, but think about being mentored by someone perhaps uh, having your um, outcomes externally reviewed by somebody and really learning to do it properly and again just do the easy type of win-win type of injections to start with without you know uh, being really sophisticated uh, uh, as though you are the master which you won't be when you start. The other thing to be aware of of course is and we kind of covered this in an earlier podcast is that with GP partners You've got to be careful you can't see your own patient nhs patients privately yeah so it's quite a fine line actually isn't it to be hosting private medical services within an nhs practice and it you know even if they're on a different floor of the building it might actually not even be allowed under the terms of the lease and ideally you should really try and separate this completely you know, actually, no one really likes to see a private waiting area in an NHS surgery. And in fact, my local practice did this. They sort of had a banner outside saying NHS and private patients. And the private patients would sort of queue up with everyone else and feel like, well, hang on, you know, I, I thought I would have a more special area to sit. And of course, they're starting with a poor experience. So um, the general experience of an NHS clinic is an NHS experience. Uh, which can be a great experience, to be honest. And a private clinic should really be separate. Yeah, uh, you know, if you're going to sort of open your doors up for private work at the end of the NHS day, that also tends to um, not go well because you know you look shattered. Uh, the the cleaners coming around, hoovering up while you're seeing your private patients, and of course. If you stray into evening work as a GP, you know, you're going to carry, start carrying all the risks around loan working, chaperone, emergency procedures. Don't, don't really be tempted to bolt on private GP services to NHS services. It's pretty hard to deliver that well. I think, you know, there are plenty of places in which GPs or physiotherapists, dietitians, nutritionists can work that aren't NHS GP surgeries and 
one of the most popular ones actually is pharmacies because or dental surgeries where you know they have cqc regulated spaces often the, the the dentists do and of course they have pharmacies often have travel clinics they have cold storage for vaccines they have disposal of medical waste they have obviously a pharmacy which is a great plus for a private gp service and uh, a lot of the guys on the course actually are um gps um who uh, have clinics within uh, pharmacies and in fact that's what my uh, gp clinic is is based in a pharmacy uh, as well so um i think that's scope of practice and conflicts of interest with consultants and gps so Let's kind of move away from that and have a little think about the marketplace, the healthcare marketplace, and think about who your customers are. Because, of course, when you're starting, you might be thinking, I need to advertise, I need to sort of market myself. And it's worth stopping and thinking about, well, hang on, who are my customers? And that can really help you direct where you spend your efforts, time and money in terms of um, developing relationships uh, either advertising or marketing uh, in order to receive patient referrals. You're surprised, you'd be surprised, but most doctors assume that private medical practice, of course, is just marketing your services directly to patients and sort of acquiring a practice base through your own sort of advertising efforts. And of course, this is an effective way of doing it. And in fact, we cover this in the course, but I actually want to talk about a little bit about other options which actually don't require direct marketing. So let's start with that question. Who are your customers? So if you're a GP, of course, your customers are your patients, aren't they? But if you're a surgeon, actually, your customer is actually likely to be the GP, isn't it? Because they're referring you patients, although you know patients do seek you directly. And of course, if you're someone like a pathologist, there's not a lot of point in running Facebook ads is there for a pathology services it's more likely to be hospitals or actually MDT groups who are your customers so the options are quite different uh, depending on your speciality so if you start with GPs um, you can use web-based portal systems or sort of concierge services and these can be a good source of patients and perhaps Doctify is one of the good examples of this Doctify kind of works. You pay a monthly subscription. Patients search for symptoms or conditions and nearby and available doctors, particularly if they have reviews, good reviews, who they come up higher on the algorithm, will appear based on their symptoms and they can book uh, directly to see you. It's kind of not a great diary in the sense that it's simply a they book the appointment and they you're notified that they want that appointment um, and actually in the course we talk about live online booking diaries linked to your practice management software which is of course much better because it actually is them booking into your clinic rather than just getting a message but Doctify top doctors there's quite a few of them is quite a good way of putting a name out there and actually I think the main benefit of those type of things is actually not getting referrals because you know you don't get that many it's more web presence because they do have a significant number of web traffic and in fact actually Doctify have teamed up with Vitality so you know 
Vitality, you know, that they have their own search portal. So kind of most people would go with a bit of Doctify. Um, you could work for another organization. So you could be a private GP, for example, in an insurance-based setting, for example, working for Bupa and Bupa Clinics, or even a large organization such as a bank, you know, HSBC or Goldman Sachs. Or you could do sessions working for like an online provider of virtual consultations. And two good examples of that are Babylon and Livio. And in that situation, what you'd be doing, you'd be undertaking sessions on their behalf, be remunerated through them, not directly with the patient. So if you kind of want to see, spend some time doing some private work, getting a little bit of extra income, but without any of the sort of hassle and stress and startup thoughts, then, you know, that sort of thing's not a bad way to dip your toes in. You could actually also work with another organization totally. For example, there are companies offering things like gut testing, uh, DNA testing, finger prick, blood testing, sophisticated hormone testing. And these are kind of what I call bespoke tests, often within the functional medicine arena nutritional therapy uh, arena and you can do training or you know do training at the Marion Gluck clinic to become a menopause inverted commas expert closing inverted commas and by doing that you can add a sort of unique selling point and access point for patients um, so you're a sort of functional DX trained practitioner or you are a menopause expert trained at the Marion Gluck clinic it's really important to understand what you're offering, be trained in it, and actually provide particularly accurate and evidence-based information. And providing you don't kind of stray too far away from conventional national guidance, or you really present a secure way of obtaining informed consent, these can actually provide quite cutting-edge and exciting aspects to your practice. And things like the functional DX testing is incredible when you look at the reports. They're really quite... Uh, fascinating and um, probably the way we are heading yeah and of course if you're a GP there's these other niche areas you can explore like aviation medicine expedition medicine working with charitable organizations or even the occupational health sector so a huge range of opportunities I've got friends who do a bit of aviation medicine bit of occupational health a couple of uh, online clinics and four sessions of uh, salaried GP work. Nice life, lots of interest, lots of potential. If you are a hospital doctor, then of course you too have several options. You could, and uh, most people would be registered with insurance providers. You know, you'd register with Bupa, you'd register with AxPBP, and they would issue you with a provider number. And of course, they're kind of advertising your services through their finder portal. And of course, Booper is probably the most well-known and largest of them. So these finder portals are where patients can search for a consultant. And when you ring up Booper as a patient and say, I've been diagnosed with breast cancer or I've got a, uh, a broken, uh, a torn ACL, um, they will often give you a few names of people that are within your geographical area. And they, they are the team at Manchester 
Now that Booper team at Manchester are using a different version of the Booper Finder to the one that the patients see and use. So you can look yourself as a patient and find people, but they will give you names based on people who have maintained their Booper Finder profile, have you know come up high in an algorithm, and they are fear assured consultants, those that have special badges which you get in addition to being fear assured. And actually, many consultants don't realize there are actually quite a few additional badges and accreditations, if you like, that allow them to be uh, appear higher in the Booper Finder. So, as well as being fear assured, I'm a badged breast specialist, which is an additional thing. So these insurers will use these algorithms to encourage patients to see fear assured recognized specialists that they know practice in a certain way. It's interesting though because actually one of the biggest changes is what is known as direct access and that's where patients are actually um, triaged by an insurer before being directed to a specialist. So the GP is often no longer the sort of portal for you as a hospital specialist. Now it used to be of course you would, your boss would play golf with a few of the GPs and you know they would always refer to Mr X or Mrs Y Miss Y and of course that's all gone as patients can access insurance companies directly so if you you know type in a breast lump into Booper um, your symptoms it'll come up do you want to speak to the Booper direct, direct access team it's a special number and they will plumb you straight in if you fulfill certain criteria to a hospital specialist. Of course what they also do, for example in orthopaedics, is try and put people off seeing specialists by you know, making it mandatory for you to have seen a physio first or something else like that. But of course this direct access process has in one fell swoop broken down some of those GP specialist relationships. So if you're an engaged and enthusiastic young consultant and you've really got your Booper Finder really su super smart and referenced and current and you, you really should be checking on it and updating it pretty regularly, probably every month, you are going to be high up the pecking order, not down the bottom. So there are available referrals out there for grabs for the enthusiastic young consultant. You can, as a consultant, work for other organizations and we've seen this sort of come through with a European and American model of healthcare. And two really good examples of this in London are the Cleveland Clinic and the Schoen Clinic. Now, these are two providers who've committed a massive investment in UK footprint and they deliver a completely different model of healthcare. So you can be employed and salaried by the Cleveland Clinic um, or the Schoen Clinic, which is orthopedics, and receive a quite generous salary and can quite can be quite attractive for a number of reasons you they they really focus on out based outcome based quality metrics on a large organizational scale so you know you know the the, the amazing outcomes from the Cleveland and Schoen uh, reflect you and the fact that you're working there shows you're amazing and therefore why wouldn't you want to come and see see you because you work at the center of excellence um, you know, working as part of a larger team with all of the sort of governance structure higher up can be quite good 
and quite reassuring and means you've got quite predictable sort of work and you'll have support of uh, 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 medical officers supporting you on the wards and things like that and that's quite attractive um, and can be quite predictable and a lot of people are jumping ship into that model particularly at the senior scale where you can actually negotiate your salary it's pretty cool um, and this could be you know a, a, a number of multiple folds above a normal NHS uh, baseline salary. You could, if you're really going for it, set up your own medical chambers, you know, strategic partnerships or partnerships and other groups with other doctors. And there are specialities actually that lend themselves to that. And one's anesthesia. You know, an example of that is W1 anesthesia. Big group. You ring them up. There's always someone who can cover a list. So the power of a large group of anesthetists means that at short notice, an anaesthetist can be supplied for a given surgeon. Orthopedics is a good one where you kind of have groups. And good one, a good example of that, of course, is the Fortius uh, group, who've just been sold. Um, uh, gastroenterology works quite well like that. I think radiology probably does. And actually i don't really know whether oncologists have really got into a group like that but in many ways it just thinking about it, it makes a lot of sense to have an oncology group which would include a surgeon a medical oncologist clinical oncologist nurse specialist under one organizational structure maybe i'll do that now i've thought about it however you know as we know with doctors with many of these small numbers of successful clinics there's been significant numbers of failed partnerships and attempted collaborations and you know on the whole history will tell you that doctors often find it quite hard to commit to the level of energy and time to do these big commercial partnerships and deals in the private sector but there have been sub substantial um, winners in this sector people walking away with big exit cash from deals um, having committed themselves in in a big partnership way the other thing it's worth mentioning is actually there's always international opportunities and some doctors in fact um, a colleague of mine from Kingston has just gone over to a medical clinic in Dubai for a couple of years change of scene and I think if you've not got significant commitments at home or you've not got children for example or you are you know, these these can be really good um, because not only is it nice and sunny and, you know, um, well remunerated, you've built those relationships with the overseas partners. And actually, particularly if you're in London or even in any major uh, city, you know, Liverpool, Manchester, Edinburgh, Bristol, you might get those opportunities to receive international patients uh, on an ongoing, ongoing fashion. And you may be able to go back and spend short periods of time there. Um, in a charitable way or as a sort of visiting doctor and that can be both rewarding and actually often well remunerated and enhance your credibility and reputation as a sort of international experts and just a final thought for this podcast if think about your specialities as um, sort of speed dating you kind of need to find your partner and there is always a partner that goes with you I'll give an example as a breast surgeon I need a plastic surgeon who can do microsurgery to do breast reconstruction 
If you are a dermatologist, you're going to want a plastic surgeon um, who can remove um, skin cancers uh, that you can't. Similarly, if you're a plastic surgeon with skin interest, you're going to need a dermatologist. If you're a functional medicine GP, you probably need a nutritional therapist, a yoga instructor, and an acupuncturist, for example. So think of yourself as having people you work with like-minded people you work with where you can have a predictable outcome from your treatments and if you're a GP think about building a team it's pretty difficult to set up a clinic if it's just you you need people around you a good clinic nurse uh, nutritional therapist things like that and actually they'll want to work with you as well so that is in a nutshell my understanding of the medical marketplace in terms of understanding who your customers are I hope today it's been uh, interesting to listen to and I hope it's kind of piqued your interest and thought about thinking carefully before you start private practice or rethinking the way you do things to really think about understanding what your business model really is and staying well within your comfort zone when it comes to scope of practice. So uh, I look forward to seeing you at the next uh, podcast, um, I think we're going to be probably going on to a little bit more about actually how you start and what the things to think about uh, when you are starting actually in private medical practice. And I'm going to cover a few things around where you work, what location should you do, and a little bit about the CQC registration and other things like that in future podcasts. So stay subscribed. Hope you have a quiet week and look forward to seeing you soon. Bye for now.